April 25 is Anzac Day. This year it should have been round three for the Premier League with a home match against Footscray. The club were working on some special activities to commemorate our servicemen and women, but of course that wasn't able to happen this year. Today though we're proud to present a Camberwell member, an Australian commando, who served on three overseas deployments in areas including Afghanistan. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. Hamish Ridlin joins the hosting team to chat with Rich Callahan. A proud serviceman, Rich was an intimidating goalkeeper with many premierships in the seconds and a State League One title in 2000. He also happens to have two Karate World Cup titles and is the Six Dan Black Belt founder and chief instructor of Blackburn Karate Club here in Melbourne. A great listen this week. Here's Mish with Rich Callahan. All right, I'd like to uh, welcome Richard Callahan to this uh, week's edition of the Campbell Hockey Cup podcast. With Anzac Day just gone, I thought it would be good to talk to a member of the Campbell Hockey Club with their experience of having serviced to Australia. Richie's been a Campbell member for many years, the player, coach, parent. Welcome to the show, Rich. Uh, thanks for having me, Mish. Uh, good to be on. So it was a, a week or so ago now, but ha- how did you spend your Anzac Day this year? Uh, it, was a, it was certainly a different one with uh, with lockdown, but it was still pretty special. We actually, uh, Lou and uh, my wife Lou and, and daughter Mia, we were out on the balcony, and um, Mia plays the trumpet, so she played the last post. Um, so it was it was uh, it was actually it was quite different, but uh, it was still pretty special. And it was funny watching the uh, the neighbours' lights coming on, you know, as she started blasting away, woke a few of them up. So it was uh, it was it was a good day, good fun. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Did you have the medals on? Uh, I didn't know. I, I, I considered it, and I went, no, nah, I'm only going to be out in the balcony for a little bit, so. I I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> and yeah, you mentioned it obviously this year a bit different, but sounds like almost a little more special in some ways. But uh, how would you normally uh, do an Anzac Day? Oh, so Anzac Day when um, when I was serving, but they were always a it was a, a massive sort of day. You know, you'd be down at the unit, um, you know, my army sort of depot down there at the, the crack of dawn, you know, or you know, a couple of hours beforehand. Especially if you're in one of the um, the ceremonial parties and stuff like that, so it'd be a, a huge day, you know, good fun. But you'd be, you know, you'd have bacon and egg rolls down there. You'd be in your first beers at about eight o'clock in the morning, and then into the city in a Young and Jacksons until about eight or nine at night. So it was a, it was always a, a good day. You know, once I got out and you know, sort of being a bit older, I've been a bit more sensible now. Normally an Anzac day, I'd be. You know, go to a dawn service with Lou and Mia, and then go to breakfast somewhere, and go home and watch the uh, the march on TV. So I've got a, I've got a bit more sensible as I've uh, got older. <laughs> and so you you always you've you've always pretty humble about your service. So can you just explain to to the people who are listening like what your role was and rank and 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 what what sort of your um, army career consisted of? Yeah, so I um I joined the reserves in um in two thousand and one. Um, it's, I actually had one of my mates from karate said, let's go, let's, let's go down and, and join this, this commando unit down in Williamstown, you know, and uh, they've got a, a fitness day or something like that. And I thought, okay, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So I rocked up down there. He was nowhere in sight, which was, uh, which was pretty funny. So I ended up. So he left, of, he left you high and dry. He left me high and dry. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and I sort of did the fitness stuff and um, they said, oh yeah, that was good. You've done well. Um, head off to Kapuka and do your basic recruit course, and um, and sort of go from there. So, it was the the, the reserves are a bit different to sort of the full time army. When you join the reserves, you actually join a unit, and you can sort of stay attached to that unit um, for your whole career. Whereas, if you join the full time army, you um, you basically go where they want you to go. You get moved around every couple of years. So, um, it was never really an option for me to do full time sort of stuff. Um, 
part-time, you know, was, was the way to go because I could stay in Melbourne because I was sort of running the karate club and stuff like that as well. Um, so, look, yeah, just joined the commandos, spent a couple of years getting qualified down there. And then um, once you were qualified, you know, you sort of – you could put your hand up for jobs overseas and stuff like that. So I was lucky to go overseas and sort of deploy to Afghanistan a few times. Um, and, yeah, then sort of, you know, got out – I think it was about 2014 when I sort of – Decided enough was enough. Being a bit sort of longer in the tooth and a bit older, I went well. Probably, probably time to sort of you know leave it to the young guys. And uh, yeah, that was that was it. Um, I didn't get any rank down there. I I was lucky enough to stay a private my uh, my whole career, which was <laughs> which was pretty good. They kept trying to push me up for promotion courses, but I um I liked the fact that I could have all the fun stuff without the responsibility. So I managed to uh to be lucky and stay a private my whole career, which was good. <laughs> So after private would be sergeant, would it? No, no, corporal. So you, or you, or you go, yeah. First you're a private, then you go to a lance corporal, then a then a corporal, then a sergeant, um, then a warrant officer, which is sort of that's all the the army ranks as a soldier. But yeah, I was uh, wasn't interested in any of that sort of stuff. Just uh, do do all the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, I, I mean, I must admit, I, I hadn't realised. I, I knew you were in the army for a while, but I didn't realise you were there for the best part of for thirteen years. Was it? So that's uh, yeah. Time gets away, doesn't it? It fly, time flies when you're having fun, they say. That's right, yeah. Uh, and so, like, I've known you for well, well over 25 years. Uh, and so, so some of the Campbell listeners would know you pretty well, but others wouldn't because it is a big, pretty big club these days. Um, so you started as a junior up the road, up from Matlock. And tell us, tell us your time, what got you to Campbell? Um, I was sort of, uh, well, I went to Campbell High School, so it was, uh, you know, just across uh, Prospect Hill Road there, but I was a, a late starter to hockey. It was um, under 17, my first my first year, yeah, under 17 Bs, um, under Ronnie Yates, uh, the late Ronnie Yates, um, playing with, with Dave Pratt and um, I think the Yule brothers, maybe Bowie was in there. Um, a guy Andrew Collier, I remember. I mean, it was a it was a pretty rough and uh, <laughs> ready sort of team. Probably could have played probably could have played footy um, instead of hockey. It was uh, it was a bit of bit of a laugh. Collier, one of the guys who played, he was um, I think he used to drive his parents' car there sometimes to games. That was sort of that was under seventeens, and we thought that it was a bit of a scary man. Um, but yeah, that that was my first year, um, and I just remember it being being sort of a lot of fun, you know, and but just an intro, introduction to hockey. Uh, the second year was under 17 A's and that was um, probably a bit of a, a different sort of setup, but still a lot of fun. That was under um, Stewie Grimshaw, who was, uh, you know, the, he was a, a New Zealand international and it was a very, very sort of different team. We had, um, yeah. I think Rosie was in the team, Marty Cash, um, and we we, were mani- we managed to win it that year. Um, so that was my second year of hockey and I thought this is a pretty, uh, pretty good fun thing. So, uh, yeah, and from there it was, you know, playing seniors as a junior and then, uh yeah, um, you know, senior senior events and stuff like that. But yeah, I was a, a late sort of starter. But yeah, played footy and then sort of fell into hockey and uh, and, and and loved every minute of it. Yeah, always always a goalkeeper. Yeah, always a goalkeeper. I was uh, didn't want to run around on the field. I was sort of always attracted to the. Um, the, the different sort of positions with sport, you know, I didn't want to, never wanted the run of the mill sort of stuff. I liked the idea of, you know, putting the pads on and doing stuff that other people didn't do. And, uh, you know, when I found out you could run and slide tackle people, well, that was, that was me in. <laughs> that was for you. That was yep, for you. <laughs> I mean, I certainly do remember uh, a David McKinsley from Waverley uh, running down the right wing and you shepherding the ball over the sideline and he thought he might just give you a bit of a pushover and he found himself over the fence pretty quickly, which uh, I do remember. Fondly. That story just keeps going around. That's right. <laughs> Good old Waverley, yep. You played with a lot of great keepers and through that time. You sort of, Rob, you know, Duck was the keeper at, um, 
in the ones at that point. And Lockie Dreyer was obviously aspiring and pushing up through the ranks and a similar age to you. Tim Gibney as well, obviously, was, was still very um, involved there at the club. You obviously had some natural gifts that translated across from karate. Who had a shape on you in terms of keeping? I think probably all three of them did, the three guys you mentioned there. So um, Tim Gibney was probably the first guy that took a bit of interest. Like I still remember him, um, you know, giving me a few tips and pointers, you know, when we, we sort of won that under-17A sort of grand final and stuff. And he'd, he'd sort of always been in the background, you know, with, with a bit of advice and stuff. So uh, Tim was probably the first guy, probably the first guy to coach me in goalkeeping, I suppose. Not formal coaching, but just, just you know, giving me, you know, sort of, a, you know, the tips and sort of tricks of the trade and stuff like that. Um, Duck. I used to love going down and watching. I remember as a, a junior, you know, as a sort of under 17 or, you know, aspiring, aspiring junior to sort of play seniors, you know, down on the, the old cinders down at Matlock there, him and his cricket pads, you know, watching him run out and sort of slide people to the top of the circle yeah. and stuff. I mean, I thought, wow, this is, this is awesome stuff. I want to be able to do that as well. And then, you know, Lockie Dreyer, who sort of, you know, came along a bit later. I mean, he was obviously down there and then went to Thames when, you know, when, you know, with Camwell's blessing, when he sort of couldn't get a game, you know, with, with Duck being there, but he was, uh, he was a guy that I used to, when he came back, you'd watch him in awe, you know, sort of the way he, way he prepared himself, you know, the, the, the way he sort of went about things. He, you know, hated people scoring against him, you know, whether it was training, whether it was playing. So, yeah, he was a, he was a you know, sort of guy you really looked up to. And, uh, you know, still to this day, you know, he's still running around doing it at the highest level. So, you know, you look at him and go really, really lucky to have, you know, played some hockey with him and stuff like that. So, yeah, probably all three of them have, have had an influence, which is... Uh, which I think is the way to go. You know, you you look to people who have, have done it before you and you you take, you know, the best they've got and, uh, and sort of move on from there. But, yeah, all three have been a, a good influence, I think. Yeah, I think I think the 80s and 90s was a great time to be a keeper too. I mean, obviously the pads started getting a bit better from the 90s compared to the 80s, but there was no flicking then and, you know, penalty corners, you'd run out at the top of the circle and slide and, you know, you'd have those sort of, with the offside rule, you'd have the you know the centre forward sneaking through, and it was those one on one battles at the top of the circle yeah. between the keeper and the the forward who snuck through the defence. It was it was pretty entertaining stuff. Yeah, definitely, always always good fun to crunch a forward when they'd come in. So yeah, it was, that was the battle, and it was always good. <laughs> and so we we crossed past in the nineties, and you know, in a very successful Pennant A team, and uh, it was it was. I was sort of coming through the juniors, but it was a great team. Uh, there was many Campbell names like the Trelope brothers and Jellies and Ridlands as older and younger siblings through there. And, and then there was, a, there was a whole bunch of players that came through the, you know, the 80s and 90s of the golden era with people like Dave Cash and Phil Pryor and Darcy and Mintz. And Mintz obviously took sort of the more sort of harder notes out of the Argus book and applied it to that team. But um, what was your memories of the team? I, I've had fond memories, but we had a lot of success and it was a good team. Yeah, look, I'm... I'm the same. They were they were great days, you know. Like um, I think it was might have been five out of six that we won for a while there or something. It was uh it was pretty good. Oh, I just, I just remember it being great great fun times, you know. We'd we'd sort of we'd win the flag and we'd we'd go to you know to to um the G bung and stuff on the Saturday night and that was just the that was the way that was the way every year seemed to pan out. I don't think we ever I don't think we've ever sort of expected it, but we um maybe we did a little bit. I don't think we took it for granted, but we, you know, it was a successful team. And, and I think, you know, Campbell still does that really well where they have the, uh, the older guys, you know, sort of in the team and the young guys coming through and the old ones sort of show the young ones away and all that. And that's, I think that's, um, I do remember that. I remember guys like Darce and Mintz, you know, you mentioned and, and Dougie Watson, you know, always, always helping you out, always giving you advice. And these were guys that had, you know, a wealth of knowledge. So it was, uh, I think that's a really good system. I think we still do that really well today. Um, but again, I, I like you, I remember them as, as fantastic days, you know, great, great fun stuff, you know, really 
awesome and uh and really lucky to be part of it i think yeah well, it was always nice to have you in the team particularly when we were at the g bunk just you know obviously hockey was was part of your thing but it was always nice to have a, a six down black belt karate you know, world cup champion in your team so obviously karate was your main uh sport so you, you sort of bit hockey around um a lot of your karate at that point um and you'd, you'd fill in for the ones when when required but that was obviously dependent on when you went away yourself with stuff so you you're a six stand black belt rank and you've you run you've run the blackburn karate for club for what 30 years or 25 years 35 now it's been a while so it's yeah it was sort of it was another it was it was i ran it with a with another guy or you know under a guy was sort of for a bit before that but yeah it's it's been yeah 35 plus years so it's <laughs> been a long time and you and been a humble i mean you, you're a very humble guy and you certainly you represented australia for a good while and, and victoria for even longer than that and you've got two world cup uh championships to your name so i guess what 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 drew you to karate Oh, I think I um, believe in sort of, uh, you know, the the ability to look after myself. I think that was probably something that drew to, drew me to it. You know, I, I'm certainly not someone who, who likes fighting, but, you know, I just think that's one of those things that it's a, a good skill to have to be able to look after yourself. So I just, that was probably the main reason to get into it. I, I played footy, like I said before, and I'm, maybe I got a bit sick of that, you know, and uh, and got sick of all the fighting that sort of, um, that, that, that footy was becoming. And, you know, go figure, I started doing karate. <laughs> I thought I'd better learn how to fight properly. And and when did it start? Like you obviously, it became your not only just your sporting endeavor, but it also became your career. When when did that sort of transpire for you? I was sort of um, in the the late eighties. I um I was I was training at the at the um, Box Hill um, Karate Club. It was that was the guy I was training under Kurt Klimgate. He um, it's I sort of just fell into it. He he didn't really enjoy teaching the kids and one day he sort of came to me and said you know do you do you want to take the kids on you know a friday and a saturday and i sort of went oh yeah i was working as a delivery driver at the time for a pool company so i was sort of delivering pool chemicals and i went well okay this sounds like a a better sort of gig so um yeah that was that was sort of how i got into it and it just yeah just um just sort of fell into it and then sort of in the um in the early 90s i had a bit of a falling out with him and sort of opened up my own place and uh and the rest as they say is history and that was the place just on the roundabout yeah, it was. We went. We were in a scout hall for about a year before that, um, just sort of trying to find a full time place. And then, yeah, we sort of moved into the roundabout there. And then, um, I think nineteen ninety two, I think was the, when when I opened that one up. So yeah. Back then, we we all knew sort of in the eighties and nineties, you were known at Campbell as the grasshopper because you were you were a pretty lean, mean fighting machine. What was your fighting weight back? Then? I used to compete uh, under seventy kilos, which was uh, pretty pretty funny for me. Now I was always about seventy two kilos, and I'd sort of spend a couple of hours in the sauna um, to sort of get my weight down and do a bit of dieting. So uh, yeah, but I'm about I'm well over ninety now, so that were that were long gone days. <laughs> seventy kilos, God, yeah, I was a I was a skinny little thing. You obviously trained particularly hard, so you would have obviously burned a lot of calories. But did you have to pay much attention to your your your, um, your diet? I didn't really. I I probably I've got better at that as I've got a bit older. But I was probably you know young and silly, and 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 diet was probably one of those things I probably could have done better. But it I, it didn't really affect me. You know, I'd, I'd sort of diet. You know, leading up to a championship. Um, but you know, yeah, it wasn't something I was I was over the top with. But um, yeah, probably something I could have done better. One of the things that we always noticed in the hockey field was your, your reflexes and how fast you were. What what were sort of the characteristics as a fighter that sort of enabled you to to reach the 
the highest level of, of the sport and to win two World Cups? Oh, sort of the, the, the trainings, um, you know, your, your basic sort of karate training and stuff. It's a lot of agility and a lot of, you know, reaction sort of stuff. But I was probably, my footwork was always pretty good um, and, you know, sort of my punching and stuff. So that was that was probably my main sort of uh, main sort of gig. And I had a good defense, had good footwork and sort of try to stay out of trouble, get a couple of points and stay ahead of them. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that, was, that was probably my sort of forte. Um, I'm, I'm sure running around with, you know, the old style hockey pads gave me good strong legs and that probably helped me as well. So so both sports I'm sure complemented each other to a to a certain extent. The old cane pads and box kickers. Yeah, that's it. And so talk us through what a World Cup looks like. How long does the championship go for and how many bouts would you take you through to was it sort of a knockout style? Yeah, it is. So it's it's all it's all elimination. So you've got to, you know, you've got to keep winning to go through to each round. Um like we'd we'd for, for my style when we'd we'd have a sort of a World Cup event, we'd we'd have a, a four day training block leading up to it as well. So all the countries would turn up, we'd sort of train for four days and that was that was pretty good. You know, you'd you'd see all the competition and you'd suss a few guys out and stuff like that. Um and that'd normally be sort of Monday through to Thursday, then the chance championship would be sort of Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it'd be a three-day event. Um, you'd normally have kids, um, things on the first day, you know, individual events on the second day. And then on the Sunday, you sort of have a half day and they do all team events and open events um, and things like that. And depending on how many in the division, you might get sort of six or seven fights. So yeah, and you, and you might have a final in the evening or you might just go straight through, you know, when your event starts straight through the finals. So there's different sort of setups, but, you know, you'd sort of, you'd train hard for the week leading up to it. And then you'd, uh, you'd sort of had a couple of days of watching things and then one day of competing and uh and yeah so but yeah six or seven fights so not incredibly strenuous but um but you'd have to be sort of on your toes that whole time because it was elimination you'd have to be sharp right and, and how long would a bout go for so three minute bouts with a minute of extra time if it's tied up and stuff like that i suppose during that that week you just don't show your best stuff yeah, well, that was that was always a thing. You, you, did you did you go? Well, I'll I'll show them everything, just try and scare them off, or I'll keep it in the bank so they uh, they don't know it. That was always the dilemma. <laughs> what was your style? Did you keep your cards close to your chest, or you play cards cards up? No, nah, I'd just go out. I'd just I'd, I'd try and I'd just be I'd be my usual self, nice and relaxed. Just do you know do what need to be done, and you know enjoy the training side of things, and then go out and fight my best. And lucky enough to sort of come away with it a couple of times. So yeah. Tell me this is true. There's this urban legend that you could have been a three times winner, but you were sort of disqualified and won a finals for illegal contact. Any any substance to that? Is there truth to that? We wouldn't want the truth to stand in the wall, you know, the truth to stand in the way of a good urban legend. But no, I've, <laughs> I, I I won two. I don't think I got disqualified in the third one. I, I got a silver one year. I got a couple of bronzes in in open weight and stuff like that. So maybe that's where it came from. I, I think I like the the other version where you illegal contact and got disqualified just as a you know sort of a bad guy would it yeah would have could have should have that's right yes <laughs> <laughs> so you know from a hockey perspective then you know we queue into sort of the 2000 premiership and you're a very important cog to that because that was an olympic year and and with Lockyer away uh for the whole year you played the whole season and and at that stage you'd sort of stopped some of your karate uh competitive ones and up until then like we mentioned before you you often play in the ones when Lockie was away but it was it was wholly and solely independent with your karate so what was your memory of that year because uh, a bit of a different take on your normal sporting life yeah, I look. I was. Uh, it's. I think about that even after twenty years. It still brings a smile to my face. You know, it was. Uh, it was. It was great fun stuff. I, I. I made a bit of a conscious decision. I knew Lockie was going to be away that year, and I knew that was probably my. Uh, my only chance to sort of play at the top level. So it. It, it really. I look back on it and I think it just panned out perfectly. So I, again, I think I'm. Uh, I'm incredibly lucky. You know, like it's. Uh, it's. I, I can still see the the. the 
the spectators, the Camberwell faithful hanging off the fence at Donny and, you know, just going absolutely feral. And I, I, I look back and I just, yeah, it's it. I look back and I just think I was I was very lucky. Um, it makes me smile, and I just uh, yeah, it was it that was a it was a great year. You know, it's uh, it's certainly up there in the highlight reel. There's been a, a long subculture of the back five and in 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 the ones men's team, and you know people like Tom Davies and stuff. But it's all started with you and and some founding members of Ben Ryan Hugh and Jason Riley. And as as a forward at the time, I was I was pretty jealous that uh, we we weren't included in this clique and. But there was a bit of psychology to it, and what do, you, what do you think you were trying to achieve with it? Actually, I think it was it started as the back three. It was uh, it was it was me and Ben and Cam, and it was it was always about the back three, the back three this, the back three that. Then it was the back three plus plus Lukey. Then it was the back three, you know, the back five. How did Lukey get down there? <laughs> well, that's I think it was on corners he'd run out, so just to try and become a part of it. So yeah, every, everyone wanted to sort of hang with the cool kids. But um, oh, look, I think it's. We, we were pretty tight in the way that, you know, it was always, we knew we had each other's back. So I think there was definitely a bit of, I don't know if it was a conscious, um, you know, sort of mentality to, to, to make us better. But we were, you know, it was, it was all about the back three. We were pretty tight. We knew we had each other's back. If someone missed it, you know, missed the ball, the next guy, you knew he was going to be there. So, I mean, it was it was, it was was good fun stuff. I think we, you know, we all got pretty, pretty annoyed when a goal went in, you know, whether it was. Cam's fault, Ben's fault, or my fault. You know, we all sort of took it together, and we were all sort of a bit hard nosed about trying to keep them out. So yeah, the the back three, back five, whatever we want to call it, was 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 pretty special. I think it's yeah, it's you know, you, you see the the game now. It's all about you know defensive units and stuff like that. You know, yeah, I think it's a pretty important part. You can't you can't you know win a win a team event on your own. You've you've got to work in your little groups and your little units. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it was it was good fun stuff. It was, and uh, I think you know uh, we didn't hit too many goals that year, so you guys needed to be on your game, that's for sure. Um, and you guys, but certainly that I, mean, I must admit, the back three click sort of took after after the game as well. I think Benny Benny Ryan profited from some of your uh, uh, back three shouting of uh, drinks after the game and things. So, I, I mean, I used to hear from you a lot: train hard, play hard, and uh, you guys certainly did that as the back three. Yes, we did. Um, much to Wanzi's um, displeasure, I think that year and stuff like that. But um, there was, yeah, there was, there was quite a few nights out at the Palace, <laughs> the Cheers, the Mercury Lounge, Frosties, you name it. We were sort of there, and the the back three was always there. So um, yeah, hockey carnivals and things like that. I think it's just part of that. You know, you 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 play sport with a bunch of guys and you socialise together and you have a bit of fun together, and that's just. Uh, that's just the way it is, you know. But yeah, we certainly uh, we certainly partied well. I think you know, living in Hawthorne was a mistake. Ben Ryan would come and bang on the door at all hours, expecting a lift home when he'd been out somewhere. So it was he pushed yeah. he, he maybe pushed it a bit too far. Classic Ryan. And so, like looking back, you've got you know you've got quite a number of supporting achievements. How does how does it, given a team sport and, and and a lot of your obviously karate, there's there's a team aspect to it where you're on tour. But as you say, in terms of having to rely on others, is is less so. So. Looking back, how does how does that sporting achievement sit with you now after all the other things you've achieved? Oh look, I love it. I still tell the guys, you know, whenever I, we we sort of talk about stuff, you know, even down the hockey club and that, I'll 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 say, you know, the the two thousand premiership is 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 right up there, you know, like you you win an individual event, you know, in karate and stuff, and it's it's great, you know, you've 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 won it off your own bat and all that sort of stuff. But then when you've you've been through some, you know, a, a set of circumstances with a bunch of guys, you know, the highs and the lows, and you've you sort of achieved that ultimate success together. I think that's uh, 
that's fantastic. You know, that that still sits, I reckon I'd put that higher than an, an individual achievement. You know, the, the euphoria that I felt after that and we all sort of felt as a group, I mean, that's that's really what you, what you play team sport for. And it's, um, I don't even know if individual achievement really, really sort of uh, can, can be as good as that. As you said, you sort of made a conscious effort to, to play in that 2000 year with the opportunity of Lockie being away and at the Olympics and gave you a chance to hold the spot down and, and as luck would have it, a premiership yeah. came with it. And, and, the, and we just spoke about before that, in 2001 you joined as a reservist and then also obviously September 11 happened in 2001. Um, so there's two events there that I suppose at the time you didn't realise it would see yourself in Afghanistan, but um, can you remember when, where you were when the, the World Trade Centre attacks happened? Yeah, I can exactly remember. It was a it was a Tuesday night, so I was down at uh, two company down at the the army unit, and I just I I jumped in the car and first, I was heading home. And I was going to mum and dad's for for some reason, on and I dropped into there on the way home, and they're sitting on the couch, and we we watched the the second plane hit the um the towers, and I just I sort of went holy dooly, you know. So it was like I I can still see it, and yeah, and then I I got a call that later on that night and I was walking the perimeter fence down at two company the next day because they were worried about terrorist attacks on Australian army bases. So it was a, it was a quite a surreal sort of moment, but yeah, I can, I can still see it now. Yeah. And so obviously at that point you, you're in, you're in the army and you're in training. Um, did you think that, you know, your, your background in sport and particularly karate and, and some of the team sport through hockey, that, did that help you prepare for what was coming? Oh yeah, I think it definitely did. You know, karate, it's, you know, you sort of work a fair bit on your sort of mental strength and men- mental toughness and stuff like that. Getting a black belt and, and all that is, you know, sort of, you get pushed pretty hard. So that was definitely a, a help to get through training and, um, and and deployment and stuff. I think team team sport as well, you know, probably plays a part too. You know, you when you when you go away with commandos or you know special forces, you sort of you um you work in small groups and small units, so you you need to get along well. You know, you've um you've got to sort of respect each other's opinions, whether you agree with them or not, and stuff like that. So it's you know all those sort of things that I learned from team sport and I learned from karate. I've definitely you know used them when I was overseas and stuff. So yeah, that's uh, again I was lucky you know to have that that sort of background. Having played with mints and and you know obviously probably some reasonably strict senseis in your time, as did you have any particular drill sergeants that sort of stacked up or just superseded what you could expect from in a sporting context? Oh no no, there's uh, there was uh, there's there's always a few good characters there, but you know I think the getting berated by mints and and different people like that probably put me in good stead for that also. So <laughs> yeah, a good and, and, and angry mints can keep up with the best drill sergeant, I'm sure. So uh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, through that training as commando as well, I mean I remember you suffered a broken pelvis there and a parachute, and so it wasn't it wasn't without its setbacks. Was that prior to deployment or leading up to? Uh, yeah, that was that was before. Yeah, it was that was that. I did I displaced my pubic symphysis, which is uh, apparently it's a pregnant woman's injury. So that uh, that made me sort of feel a whole lot worse as well. So it was uh, <laughs> yeah, I knocked the the joint in the, the the fused joint in the front. I sort of knocked that out of whack a little bit. But um, yeah, that was yeah, that was before I went away. I think overseas. But that was it. Sort of knocked me around for a for a month or so. But it um, you know, it it, it was something that wasn't you know wasn't too serious in the end that I could sort of get over it. It hasn't given me any dramas or anything like that. So that's why people join you know commandos because normally you get to jump in a water so you you don't hurt yourself. Although I managed to do that a couple of times as well, land in the water on a bad angle and twist my knee or do something. So yeah, I've, I haven't been I haven't had the best of luck with parachuting, but it's a it's a crazy activity anyway. I don't know why people would want to do it. 
<laughs> and so one thing we noticed too, obviously, when you were going through the training, like we, we saw you less frequently than we did when you were playing hockey, but the grasshopper somewhat changed into a bit more bulk and a bit more hulk. What was sort of the training regime that, that, that sort of the commandos led you down? Went from a grasshopper to a scarab beetle. Yeah, that's it. Big, big bulky thing. Um, <laughs> oh, I, don't, I think just the, the nature of army training, you know, it's a, it wasn't a conscious effort to try to put weight on, but I think it's just a byproduct of the uh, of the courses and the stuff you do. Like you might be on a, a, a pretty physically intense course, you know, for a, for a couple of weeks and you're eating like a horse to stay on top of things. Um, so it's just, a, I think it's just naturally what's going to happen. Plus, yeah, when I was deployed overseas, you know, you probably got 50 kilos on your back, 60 kilos on your back. So if you're, if you're weighing 70 kilos, you, uh, you're going to struggle with that. It'll eventually break you down. So I think you just automatically bulk up just by, you know, carrying loads around all the time. And, you know, like I said, the training and the eating that you do, you uh, you, you manage to pack it on. I, I did weights for about 10 years and couldn't put on any weight to join the army and that made the difference. Leading up to that, you've, you've done a lot of training. As you mentioned before, you, you get to, is it you volunteer to get deployed at that stage as, as, in as a reservist? Yeah, you put your hand up. So they, um, they, they won't send you away unless you actually, they'll, they'll say, look, there's spots overseas. Who wants to go? And you basically put your hand up. So yeah, they can't force you to go as a reservist, which again is different to the full-time guys. And for you, what was, what was the attraction of, of, obviously you've done the training, was it putting the training to use? So what, what was your motivation to actually say, go through with it? Oh, definitely. It's it's one of those things, you know, it's like playing sport, you know, and or, you know, training for sport and never actually getting to do the game. It's, you know, the army's no different. You spend all these years training and you uh, you want to get overseas and, 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 you know, sort of test yourself out and, you know, put all those skills and stuff to, um, to the test. So it's, uh, yeah, definitely that's that's the main sort of attraction. You want to get away and do it. And so you started in 2001. So how many years training did you spend before you, before you saw your first deployment? I think it was 2000. I'd done some work in, uh, deployed to Darwin was a bit of a job. I think that was 2008, you know, and then it was 2010. Um, I'm pretty sure when we sort of went overseas. So it was, you know, from 2001, I spent probably the first two years becoming qualified. Then you spend the next few years, you know, putting your hand up for jobs. But the, the jobs were pretty lean sort of um, in the early years, just because there was all the full-time guys were doing all the jobs and then, you know, as they'd been to Afghanistan more and more times, you know, they'd, they'd sort of have a bit of a, you know, they'd have spots come up for guys being injured, you know, or guys just sick of, you know, going over there. So that's when more and more doors had opened for us. So it probably took a good five years before, you know, we could sort of go. So then, yeah, 2010, we got the call and we were actually going to go to Timor and then we got called into the uh, the office and they said, oh, look, there's another job overseas. And we sort of said, where? And they went, well, we can't tell you unless you volunteer. And we went, well, okay, we'll all volunteer. And then we found out it was Afghanistan. So it was, uh, it, was a, it was a good trip. We wanted to go there instead of Timor anyway. Apparently Timor by that stage had just become a, a four-wheel drive holiday, they reckon. So it was a chance to get to Afghanistan and do some, you know, do the job for real. So we all sort of jumped at it. Was it the whole unit went or was it just a section of the unit? No, it was only there was seven of us went over there, so it was uh, we were the the trailblazers. So it was a basically a, a filling in sort of job with the full time guys. We were known as the Magnificent Seven because we got the call up. So it was uh, it was good fun <laughs> and very lucky. A lot of us would, could really only appreciate nerves about you know an event leading up about an exam or a grand final or you know a karate world cup event. But give us what's what's the sense that you have when you're flying you've, you've left the shores from australia and you're flying even to afghanistan probably more excitement um than the nerves the the first sort of time and people sort of think that's a bit strange but yeah you, you know you like i said you, you train for you know so long to to do the job that you really sort of can't wait to get over there so it's it's pretty exciting you know you 
you get a diplomatic passport and you leave from uh, there's a, a funny little um, terminal at Melbourne Airport where all the diplomats and stuff sort of go out of. So you leave from there. So you you're thinking you're pretty special, you know, <laughs> when you sort of go out through there and you and then you you fly to um you fly to Kuwait in a, a civvy plane. So it's you know nothing really sort sort of too disparate uh, too different there. But then you jump in a Herc and and sort of fly in a country in the uh, as you cross into Afghan airspace, the pilot will tell you to put your uh, your body armor on and all that, and then you start sort of thinking, okay, now it's getting a bit real. Um, but yeah, but yeah, but probably yeah, nerves not really, excitement sort of um, more than anything else. And then once you'd sort of been there a few times and made the trip, you you just sort of couldn't wait to get over there and get in the job. The the travel over there just became a bit of a, a pain. You wanted to be there as quick as you could, you know. What sort of time are you used to go there? I used to remember it was around the Christmas time that you were sort of often there. Yeah, I did a um, I did a summer and um, and a couple of winters. So yeah, the winter was uh, was interesting, pretty freezing cold. But yeah, and you were at altitude at that point. Yeah, you are. You're yep. So at the the base there in Tarrant you're at um, I think it's about three thousand meters or something like that. So you you're, you're fairly high. And the first time you go over, you uh, you go for a couple of runs around the airfield and it wipes you out, you know, because you're not used to it. And then sort of, you know, as the more times you've been over and the longer you've spent in country, you you get used to it and you come back and you're, you know, as fit as a fiddle because you've been doing all that altitude training. But it's uh, quite an extreme place. Yeah, the winter's crazy. The uh, altitude's crazy. What, what sort of temperatures would you been faced with? Oh, we'd have minus 15 at night. You know, be out on the job somewhere up on a hill and you'd be uh, pretty cold. And then, you know, during the in, of summertime, it's 50 degrees um you know, plus 50. So it's, it certainly is a land of extremes. So, and, and that turnaround is probably about 30 days. So you're probably, you know, one month you're at minus 15 and then, you know, a month later you're at uh, 30 degrees during the day. So it's, uh, it's quite, quite bizarre, quite extreme. And what, what would a typical day look like for you in, as you say, on a job? Each tour was sort of a little bit different um, and, and no job uh, or sort of no day is really a, a typical day. You'd, if you're on base, uh, you'd either be on base or you'd be on the job. So, you know, on the job would be out patrolling or, you know, flying in helicopters, going to a target or something like that. So, you know, that would be the sort of, uh, that'd be the job and you'd be, you know, sitting on a target, watching it for a couple of days or, you know, just or running a, um, a medical clinic in a village. I mean, it could be a whole range of different things that you do. Um, you might be out on the quad bikes patrolling, you know, might spend out, you know, a, a month out, you know, outside the wire, they call it. So, yeah, a, a broad sort of role of things. When you're on base, it would be eating food, pumping weights in the gym, going for runs, going for shoots down the range, um, training, just, uh, you know, trying not to go stir crazy, waiting for the next job. But it was um, very broad, you know, very varied, you know, the stuff that you were doing. So that always kept it interesting and kept it exciting. Imagine there'd be a fair amount of planning you'd have to do with some of these things. You can't obviously just go walk about uh, in an area like that without, uh, she'll be right, mate. Uh, give us an insight of what, what would go into sort of a, a, pre, a pre-job pre planning. Oh, yeah, so everything's planned to the nth degree and, you know, commanders are, are told to come up with a plan and they, they bring it back to the uh, the chief, so to speak, and they will look at it and go, nope, too much chance of, you know, something going wrong here, so go back and rework it, come back to us. So, you know, the, the Australian Army's pretty good at, um, you know, really looking after their people. I mean, gone are the days of sacrificing hundreds of guys going over the top, you know, in the First World War and things like that. I mean, everything's really sort of well planned out. You'll rehearse the whole thing. You'll you'll go over it. I mean, there's some jobs come up that are quick jobs that you just sort of jump in a helicopter and off you go because some intelligence pops up. But most of the things are pretty well planned out, you know. And you you work with the guys. You you do 
pre-deployment training with them so you know how they're going to react to things. So it's all all pretty well organised, pretty well planned um, and, and well thought out. Although having said that, they talk about, you know, the best laid plans not not surviving the first round of contact. The guys are pretty good, you know. They they all know the roles. They know what the commander's intent is. So you can you can sort of even work things out on the ground, you know, the, the sort of the last minute if you have to. But by and large, things pretty well organised, pretty well planned. And uh, you, you mentioned you were sort of, were sort of in relief for, for the SAS and the commando unit. So what was it like coming in as a sort of an outsider to the team? I, I, I guess in some ways you used to pop into the, the ones every now and again, similar but different. What was the dynamic of coming into a team, an established team like that? It's funny. There's a lot of there's a lot of animosity between the SAS and commandos. They sort of they they compete for each other's jobs, so they they often don't like each other very much, even though they've got a healthy respect for each other and stuff like that. As as a reservist, we were we were pretty good. Like we we come from a different world to to a lot of the full time guys. Like they they all they've known is the army, and they they're almost a bit institutionalised. You know, they they act a certain way. They all talk the same. They all act the same. It's quite funny. Whereas you get these reservists come in who are who've got other lives, you know, and they, um, yeah, we, we actually get along okay with them. You know, once they see we're not too much of a threat, they, they generally sort of, you know, let us get along. I think also too, you are, your reputation sort of precedes you. If you go in there and you're someone who's, you know, not very good at their job, then they'll, uh, they won't want to have a bar of you. But if you, likewise, you come in as someone who's got a good reputation, then they're sort of happy to have you on board. So I've talked to the Premier League boys a bit about that in the past, you know, that your, your reputation's important. You know, you've got you to look after it and you've got to uh, keep it intact and, and uh, it, it'll take your places. And what was the culture? culture like in uh, in the unit you were deployed in it's it's a very different unit you know because you've got people from all walks of life so you know as a reserve unit you've got a lot of a lot of police a lot of fireys um you know sort of government jobs because they get a bit of extra um army leave i think they can take you know sort of double their holidays if, if they use it for army training and stuff so yeah you get a lot of them but then you've, you've got students and you've got CEOs, you've got karate instructors, you know, um, or people from all walks of life. So that's that makes it an interesting place. Um, and the culture is pretty good because you know you you don't really get many people down there who are just gonna, you know, there for the wrong reasons. It's a pretty hard sort of uh, it's a pretty hard job um, to sort of stay involved with the unit. So you know everyone down there is trying to better himself. So the culture is pretty good. Yeah. As a civilian, you hear a lot about, and there's a lot of talk every year about the legend of Anzac and and mate Chip and for you being in the inner sanctum, what what does that mean to you, and has it changed your idea of what a mateship means? Oh, it's probably just a, a more extreme version of you know you, you see mates you know backing each other up on the footy field or on the hockey field and, and stuff like that. But I think the army's maybe just similar thing, you know, just just taken to another level. You know, you, it's certainly one of the pillars of, um, of you know the Australian Defence Force. You know, you've you've got to know that you know your mates will won't leave you behind. They'll they'll come looking for you. You, you sort of you, you go through a lot of uh, extreme situations together so that bonds you pretty tight so but you know it's I've, I've got no doubt there's there's mateship you know right across all aspects of society you know the the police would be pretty tight as far as mateship goes you know especially after the terrible thing that happened to them you know last week you know the the fireys and stuff like that they'd be pretty tight you know ambos and things so it's it's it, it, it's a great thing in the army but you know i'm sure it's uh it's something that you know we all we see across all aspects of society and stuff like that but yeah mateship in the army good fun did you form another back three whilst you're away? Did you have a, some characters that you get to know and come to rely on? 
well, we we were probably a back five because there was five in the team, so it was uh it was pretty, <laughs> it was yeah pretty. We'd sort of hang out together, you know. It was the snipers would sort of all be, be hanging out and you know doing things together, and it's uh it it, it was yeah pretty pretty tight, you know. A lot of the other guys would would sort of look on a bit jealously as well, you know. How come those guys are all hanging out, looking like they're getting along together? But that's that's small team units. That's what you have to do, you know. You you you've got to get along with each other because you're living living each, in each other's pockets for for months on end. So you've uh yeah, you've, you've got to be pretty close. So, yeah, we probably formed a bit of a back five. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm always curious, and I think I've asked you this in the past, but how, how, how were you received on the ground by the locals in, in Afghanistan? That's always an interesting one. It's the, um, the locals, are, they're generally pretty good. Um, it's, it's funny, they really, they're probably like you and I, they just want to, um, they want to raise their kids. They want to, you know, live in a safe country they want to you know have a job and all that sort of stuff so very very similar so they, the, the fact that we're there you know it, that causes them not to be able to do that then they they don't really like us then there's others who you know love having us there because we do medical clinics and stuff like that they talk about there's there's 20 percent love us you know and want us there 20 percent hate us and don't want us there and the 60 percent in the middle you know really are indifferent and that's that's the hearts and minds battle but you know everywhere we went locals are pretty good um you know there's just that constant battle between the the local villages you know and and, and sort of the taliban would come in and go well okay if you look after the Australians, we're going to come back and take your kids away and all that sort of stuff, whereas the Australians are in there, you know, on the opposite side saying, well, look, you know, give us some information and we'll look after you, you know, and all this sort of stuff. So that that's really, a, they're a bit between a rock and a hard place and that's sort of the hard thing over there, you know, with the, the locals trying to trying to do the right thing. But, you know, to your face, they're always good to you. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we made a difference over there in some people's lives. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, we've, we're always well received wherever we went. When did you know for you that was your last tour would be your last? What, what was the the moment where you thought, okay? Yeah, look, I've, I I sort of I decided that three three was a good number. Um, I didn't want to be one of those guys who just deployed once just to see what it was like. I thought three, I thought three was a a good sort of you know thing to show you were committed to the cause. Also, I had my um my sister sort of my sister passed away from cancer on my last deployment, my third deployment, and I I, I came home for the funeral and I sort of went well. I looked at mum and I thought I can't go away again, you know, and and sort of you know have the chance of her losing mm. another kid. So I um that was then a pretty easy decision. So I went back, you know, finished my tour, and then uh, came back and went, well, that's it. I won't I won't deploy anymore. So um yeah, that was I, I can I can still remember that, and that was a, definitely a conscious decision and a, a pretty easy one to make in the end. Yeah, like changing gears like that, coming from a combat zone back into normality, and you know, I was sort of talking about this the other day with someone else. Like, you know, like Monday night vets is a long way from Kabul, right? So how did you go with changing, you know, coming back to Melbourne and what is a very easy life um, versus you're in a combat zone the next moment you're in civilian life? Yeah, look, I've, I've probably found it pretty easy. Maybe it was all the, you know, karate trips and stuff I'd go away on, you know, I'd go, I'd, I'd go away and have a karate tour for a couple of weeks and come back and settle straight into work. You know, I'd, even when I was away in Afghanistan, I'd, I'd still be on the email, like the, the karate club was still running. So I'd be mm. emailing people, you know, and doing things. So, so I knew my, my, I had two lives. I had my army life. I had my karate life back at home and, and I knew they were both sort of coexisting. So I, um, I don't think it was particularly hard. I'd just, I'd finish my tour and I'd come back and I'd settle straight back into my karate life and, um, and there was no problem. I get it why some of the full-times guys, you know, struggle when they come back because, you know, they, they come back and they've just, there's nothing to come back to other than more army stuff. So I think I was uh, pretty lucky with that. And, and it's it never, it never really been a problem. Probably the only problem was 
traffic used to drive me nuts. I'd come back and I'd just be <laughs> more impatient when I'd come back. And, I, and I've heard speaking to the other guys, they're the same, you know, so it seems to be something we all have dramas with. But, you know, if that's, if that's my biggest problem, then that's nothing. <laughs> you hear, we hear a lot about, um, you know, post-traumatic stress and, 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 and a number of veterans struggling. Do you think having karate and, and other aspects in your life and that balance really sort of help you change gears and go between the two jobs? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, I, I joined the Army quite late too. I was 32 when I enlisted. So I think that helps as well. You know, you, you sort of know yourself um, a little bit better. You know, it would be different if you're, a, you know, an 18 or a 19-year-old going away and stuff like that. So I've, I have my moments when things get to me. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at sort of, you know, differentiating between the things I can control and the things that I can't control. So um, that's always been something I've done. I've done pretty well. You know, if I if I can't control it, there's not really a lot of point sort of worrying about it. Um, I've always been okay with talking to people and stuff like that as well. So you know, it's a, I've always vented and stuff. So I'm again, it's it's not something that's really um, I'm not worried about. You know, and I, I really haven't noticed. You know, sort of coming back any sort of PTSD or anything like that. So yeah, I've been been lucky. I've known you for a long time, and you don't haven't changed a, a jot since I've met you the first time twenty five thirty years ago. But um, do you, do you feel like service has changed you in any way? Oh, it's, it's it's good to know it hasn't changed me. But yeah, I don't I don't, I don't really think it has. I think I'm I'm the same person. It's maybe given me a um. A sense of pride in in what I've done. You know, I'm I'm certainly proud of the, of, of the service. It's given me more experience. I, I I love David Parkins. You know, sort of idea that you know you you're writing your life's book. You know, when you you want to open up those pages and see that they're full of things. So I I love the fact that I've you know gone away and done something. You know, and it's it's a, another chapter in the book, so to speak. Um, it's it's certainly given me a, a bit more of an understanding of myself. So it's um, I don't think it's changed me particularly, but um, other than you know, give me a bit more sense of pride and and you know, a bit more understanding of myself. We well, should be very proud, I think. Yeah, I mean, and I thought you know one of the things I noticed too when you come back, and I was lucky enough to to work with you as part of the coaching staff of Premier League for a good number of years, and now now I'm a, a a parent who sends his child to your karate club, and I'll be shipping another one off to you very shortly. He needs it, um, and I'm 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 obviously very uh, you know I'm amazed at how you can control 35 year old kids with ease, and but I think it's the it's the it's the, some of the life lessons that you sort of talk to the kids at an early age. What, how, how do you think um, being in the army and, and your experience as an athlete, because I suppose you're at that point in your life where you become more of a teacher than a doer. Yeah. What are the key messages you try and impart on, 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 on people you work with? I think that's the key. As you get older and you can't do it, you've got to teach it. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, look, I, I, I try to teach them that that's, you know, it's that the old sort of adage that, you know, hard work pays off. You know, that's one of those things that if you, if you really if you really want something and you're prepared to work for it, then you know the the sky's the limit. So that's that's something you you know you you really try to impart with people and um and you know in that that sort of team environment, you know that you you really need to to care for one another. Um, you know the the responsibility to do the right thing and and you know really wanting wanting the success of your your fellow teammates you know above your own is a, a really important thing so that sort of you know I try to teach that in the in the team environment but look there's you know, I've I've been lucky enough to have some some great mentors in my life you know who, who taught me the lessons and I just try to pass on whatever I can you know yeah I can still I can still see people you know I can still hear their voice telling me little tidbits of information and I sort of go yeah well that's that stayed with me and that's that served me well so you know you just try to you try to do what you can and and you know give people those tip, little little 
little gems of information back so that, you know, hopefully takes them to a better place and they can then impart that on to, to people they influence down the track as well. And I, I mean, the last thing, I, I, as, a, as a fellow Hawthorne supporter, the Campbell yeah. Hockey connection there with Phil Merriman and uh, Peter yeah. Bequee led you down there. And obviously your service was another um, aspect of you fitting in there. Hawthorne makes a big deal about their Dakota walks yeah. and things like that. So they obviously valued that aspect that you brought to it as well. Can you talk about what it's been like working in a high-performance environment like that? Oh yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. You know, um, obviously a bit different now with the with the shutdown, but it'll hopefully all uh, pick up again later on. But it's um, look, it's 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 been fantastic, and, and me being a an amateur athlete all my life to to sort of you know it's been a real opener working with professional athletes and seeing sort of how the other half lives. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's been great. And it's um, people often ask me, you know, the differences between you know the Hawthorne guys and the you know the Hawthorne AFL guys and the and the Campbell Premier League boys and stuff. And I, it, it's funny, I watch them and I go, there's not a huge difference as far as you know the the fitness and the drive, the professionalism, all that sort of stuff. Probably the the four hundred thousand dollar pay packet's probably the, uh, the the biggest sort of difference. But the um, yeah, it's it's. I've loved my time. I love seeing the difference between professional and amateur. I love you know working with the elite groups and stuff like that. So again, I'm, I'm again I've been pretty lucky, you know, and um, I'm certainly enjoying my time down there. They've even got you doing tackling now too, haven't they? Not only boxing, you're tackling as well. Every year I go down there, they give me another job. Sometimes I'm throwing balls up with David, Damien Monkhurst doing doing some ruck stuff. Uh, every year they'll give me different roles, so it's uh, a <laughs> pretty funny. <laughs> and it was it's Hodgie, wasn't it? Hodgie wanted a few little tips and tricks around how he could legitimately twist someone's yes, arm. Yes, and, he has. I won't, you know, pull someone's finger in a certain angle. Yeah, we won't. We won't mention that. We won't mention and get him in trouble. But yeah, he was. He was one who was always looking for a few, uh, a few unfair advantages that he could get. <laughs> And I'll, last couple of questions. I, I mean, I've done a little bit of sparring with you and, and just got punched and thought I had a good six-pack until you punched me in the guts and I killed over. But who, who, who in, in, in the Hawks would you know, best go with the gloves as a Hawthorne fan? Oh, I think at the moment it's Jarman Impey. He's a uh, he's he's pretty good actually. He's I've watched him and I I tell him all the time. I say you've done a bit of boxing, haven't you? And he goes, No, no, I haven't done it. But it's, it's he's definitely done some boxing. He's he's pretty handy. Uh, his technique's really good, and he could um he could step into the ring, I reckon. And and Cyril when he was down there, yeah, he goes really well. Cyril, Cyril before he retired, he was uh, he was pretty handy too. He was good fun. Uh-huh. Yep. Fantastic. Well, Rich, uh, thank you very much for taking time out on a on a Sunday night and no having worries. a chat. Um. Yeah, I think very. I mean, you should be very proud of your service of Australia, and it's it's been great listening and getting some insight. And um, yeah, normally with the Anzac Day, we we would do something down at the hockey club, but not this year. But uh, I thought it was appropriate we we weave something like this into the podcast. So uh, thanks very much for your time. That's awesome, mate. Thanks very much.